0: This is The Hindu on Books, a weekly podcast from India's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature. Hello, this is The Hindu's on Book podcast, and I'm Shobhana K. Lair. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Rosie Levlin Jones, MBE, who is a well known British scholar and has written several books on Lucknow. But today she's not here to talk about Lucknow. We are going to chat with her on her latest book, Empire Building, The Construction of British India, 1690 to 1860, that looks at the granular details, the very building blocks of modern India. Welcome, Rosie. Good to have you here. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, as Tell me you, uh, where you are sitting right now and how's the
1: view. Paint us a picture, if you may. Okay, well, I'm sitting in my study in London, southwest London, and behind me I have a large bookshelf. I've probably got about 3,000 books, I think, in all. Not all of them about India, but the shelf directly above me has not only my collection of books on Lucknow, which is quite extensive, but it's also got books I've written. And my first book, as you said, was about Lucknow. It was called A Fatal Friendship. And it was looking at the relationship between the Nawabs, the rulers of Avad, the British, and also the city itself. And this was really one of the first books to look at the architecture of Lucknow in detail and to look at it critically. When I first went to Lucknow in the 1970s, I really couldn't find anything at all about the buildings. And yet... They were absolutely remarkable. There's much more there then than there is today. A lot has been demolished.
0: Well, I'm sure that's the case, but I'll have to take you to um, Calcutta, the sweltering heat of Calcutta. We'll talk about the controversial beginnings of the city. I can't, uh, but I can't wait to talk about one guy, Dean Muhammad, who you say is the first Indian author to
1: publish in West. Tell me, who is this guy? Well, he he was really interesting, actually. Um, he began, I think, in Patna, and he joined the East India Company. When his commanding officer decided to retire and go home to Ireland for some reason, Dean Muhammad followed him, and he wrote, as I said, the first book by an Indian author in English about his travels. But he'd also done interesting things like um, setting up a place for shampooing in England. And shampoo, as you know, is an Indian word which comes from massage. And this was something quite unknown to the British. So, you know, he was a pioneer in many ways.
0: Wow, it is very interesting. One thing that really struck me about your book is the way you talk about the engineers. um, And these, po- these poor guys who've played multiple roles, they're the architects, they're the cartographers, they're the defense strategists, the one know-it-all born out of East India Company's parsimony. Can you talk about a little bit about the East India Company's engineers?
1: Yes. I mean, it was very ad hoc business at first. There was no training for engineers at all until the beginning of the 19th century. So these people would go out with very little practical knowledge. Obviously, they couldn't imagine what India was like. And it seems that at first, it was mathematicians who were most needed because they could do the surveying, they could make the calculations if you're building a bridge. And also, they had to carry out a very wide range of jobs. Building an observatory was something that an engineer was called on to do. And after he built it, he not only had to uh, you know, supervise it, he actually had to take meteorological observations. So they really had to be men of great talent. And it's, it's quite interesting that if you look at the building of the first Fort William in Calcutta, again, it was very ad hoc. And the first buildings were actually put up by admirals. It sounds strange, but if you think about it, um, the company are coming in and they've got their cannons on board. And once you start to get the cannons off a ship onto dry land, it has to be angled um, at a certain elevation. You can't fire a cannon straight ahead. So it's the the sailors um, and their commanding officers who are deciding on the height of the elevation of the cannon, and that means that within a fort you're starting to get these platforms, if you like. And the whole fort is built around these platforms where the cannons are, and gradually it becomes more sophisticated. But it took a very long time, and this is really one of the reasons why Fort William fell to Sarajadola, the nava of Bengal. It was very poorly defended. And the East India Company had never really sent out enough money to build proper barricades around it. They've suggested at one point it should be a sort of... But,
0: you know, our audience will get a little confused. I'll have to take you a few years back. Can you now talk about how Calcutta came into being? And then we'll come into portfolio.
1: Well, there's been a myth for a very long time, if you like, that it was the... East India Company who founded Calcutta, and in particular one man, Job Charnock, an Englishman, is supposed to have discovered Calcutta in 1690. But this really isn't correct. Calcutta was quite a small but flourishing town as far back as we can tell. And Charnock simply picked Calcutta because it was a very, very good port area. It was very safe for ships. But we know that the Portuguese had been there at least a century before, and the Armenians too. So Jarnock was not really making a new discovery. He just thought it would be an appropriate place. And it is thought that his engineers, such as they were, actually demolished a Portuguese church in order to build Fort William. And gradually, as the fort developed, the company was trying to buy land or at least to lease land around the fort, leasing it from Indian landowners, landholders, zamindars. And the idea was that if you can attract people to the land around your fort, around your factory, if you like, you can then tax them, charge them revenue, and that kind of thing. And it also increases trade. And obviously, since the East India Company was a trading company, this is what it wanted to do. So it started off in quite a small way by leasing land around the first Fort William. And this is how it developed. And in a way, this is also what encouraged the Nawab of Bengal to come down and besiege Calcutta because he was jealous of the land that the company were increasingly buying up or leasing. In effect, the more land you have, the better trade, the more powerful you are.
0: So, this is the beginning of your book, somewhere in 1690, we are talking about That's Charlotte's right, yes. entry. Yes.
1: And when uh, does uh, Fort William come into being? Fort William started in a fairly minor way. By about 1700, there was a small factory there. The term factory is a bit misleading because it's not where things are actually made. But it's like a warehouse where goods are coming in to be exported to the West. And also goods are being received from Europe and the West to be distributed and sold in India. So you have a fairly small factory. It's not very well defended. And this was really the start of the first Fort William. And you can actually trace the outlines now by walking around the general post office in Calcutta and Lord Curzon marked on the walls where the outline of the fort had been. It's quite a short walk. You can actually do it within half an hour which shows that the fort itself was fairly small and certainly compared to other European forts it was very small indeed. It didn't have a church within it and this is actually quite interesting because a church was built outside the fort, called St Anne's Church, and it had quite an impressive steeple or tower. So when the Navab of Bengal came down to try and seize Calcutta, the steeple was an obvious place for his marksmen to go up it, to climb up it. Then they could fire directly down into the fort. So building a church with a steeple or a tower outside a fort is not a good idea.
0: Ah, so very interesting. You talk extensively in your book about maps. Oh, yes, Uh, yes. And you say that before the Europeans came, we didn't really have any maps for roads to, where do the roads lead to and things like that. Can you explain how bad the situation was?
1: Well, it it wasn't bad. It was different, put it like that. Um, It doesn't seem to me that maps were used or needed very much i mean india during the time of the moguls was not actually going to go out and conquer new territories they knew what they had and because of the really good administrative situation you had governors or subedars throughout Mughal india and they knew their territories and if you if you think why do you actually need maps I and mean, the moguls were not really in the business of conquering different parts of India because it was all under their territory. So you're not sending Mughal armies into different parts of India, perhaps apart from Rajasthan, Rajputana, which was never really part of the Mughal Empire. So why else do you need maps? You need maps of people who are traveling a lot. And this really didn't seem to happen. It looked as though trade was fairly localized. And there are all kinds of accounts by the the British when they came and just couldn't understand this. And they would ask for surveyors, you know, can you show me this part of um, Bihar, for example. And they found out that people didn't really know their areas much more than about two miles beyond where they lived. Wow. It's extraordinary. There's no overall picture of India from the Indian viewpoint at all. Um, What I have found is that there were maps for pilgrim routes, and this makes much more sense when you consider that one of the reasons Indians would want to move around, um, and it's not warfare and it doesn't seem to be trade, but they do want to visit pilgrim sites. They want to visit temples and mosques. So you do seem to have a number of these pilgrim routes, and they were found by an Austrian man called Joseph Tiefenthaler and he produced a very good book in 1766 and this incorporates some of the early maps, the pilgrim maps, particularly going up into the Himalayas. So perhaps it's not strictly true to say there are no maps at all, it's just that they haven't survived. They only seem to have survived because people like Tiefenthaler we're using Indian maps, which are then destroyed. And when we talk about Mogul maps, we're really talking about the early Europeans, particularly the French and the Jesuits, coming in and mapping out the country. They're using Indian draftsmen, but they're actually initiating the maps. So it's a curious situation, particularly if you compare it to um, England, for example, where we had quite viable maps from the 13th century onwards. Again, marking pilgrim routes, because we were pilgrims and we were religious and we marked cathedrals, so you could actually travel from London to Canterbury Cathedral. But as I say, they were very well developed by the 13th century. I simply don't find that in India.
0: And what you say in the book is that uh, the fact that they did not We allowed uh, outside force to come to our country and to map, uh, to do cartography, extensive cartography. It actually uh, holds an important clue to the successful colonization of our country. So the fact that we
1: allowed it ha- to happen. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, I mean, it, it's this thing about knowledge being power. And so once the Europeans, and particularly the British, have a knowledge of your country, then they're halfway towards colonizing it. And the reason the the company was so keen on geography is obviously that they themselves were conquerors, and they needed to find out where the rivers were that needed crossing, so you'd need engineers to build bridges, where the roads were viable where the towns were. And this is why they were so intent on providing very, very detailed maps. And they were incredibly detailed. And once they started the great trigonometrical survey, they could actually work out the distances, the mileages between the towns. And you can see that all of this is incredibly useful for an army that's planning conquest or to put down revolt, that kind of thing. I said maps are absolutely essential.
0: Now, you know, one of the very riveting chapters for me was the one on cantonments. Today, uh, we know the cantonments as these little pockets of greenery, wide and clean roads, orderly traffic, where entry and exit is regulated by the army. But you take us to the very origin of these cantonments. And there you also pose a question, which is the cantonment which was first built? Was it Barhampur or Barakpur? Let's get into the story through Barhampur versus
1: Barakpur. Can you tell us more? Yes, I mean, the cantonment seems to be an entirely European concept because during the time of the Mughals, there was no standing army if if you wanted to. You know, mountain expedition against the Rajput states, for example, you would ask your nobles to put together a group of men, but there was no one place where you could say, this is where the Mughal army lives. So it was a new concept. And it seems that there was a very small uh, and Rosie, why is that? Why didn't the
0: uh, Mughal army have a house? Uh, you write something about uh, you. once you house them, then
1: you have to feed them or some. there are those problems, right? Yes, this is also something to do with it. Um, because there was no standing Mughal army, it means that the Mughals didn't have to worry about feeding the men or arming them or even providing them with uniforms. So there are advantages in it. But once you do get a standing army, as the company started to employ, then there are all kinds of things that go with it. Um, You have to provide them with horses, for example. In the Mughal army, the soldiers had to bring their own horses, and that would have disqualified a lot of people who could not have afforded horses, that kind of thing. So it's, it's an entirely different concept once the company come in. And, as I say, the idea of contunements is a European idea. It's actually a French word from Canton, to put people together in a district. And um, certainly Bohampo was the first major cantonment, and that was actually very fine. Indeed, it was very large. It went over budget, but what it provided was a parade ground in the middle of a block of buildings. And again, this was important. This was a new concept where you actually get men parading around, you can get them coming up performing exercises and that kind of thing. It's a question of control in a different kind of way. And you get the officers living by the parade grounds, you get quarters for the soldiers, and importantly, you get quarters for their stabling. But you also need things like powder magazines, which is housing the gunpowder you're going to need, and the armaments area.
0: And it's interesting...
1: Sorry, go ahead.
0: Yeah, how did Berhampur come to be the first
1: cantonment? Can you take us through that? Um, Because the company owned land there already, there was certainly a farm there. It was within their territory. And it was convenient because it was obviously on the banks of the Ganges. And that allowed the company to move upstream to places like Mongir. It, it makes sense logically. And also it's going towards Moshidabad, which, as you know, was the old capital of Bengal.
0: Oh, interesting. You were saying something before I interrupted you. Do you want to continue that? You said that. <laughs> I
1: don't remember what it was. But I'm interested how you pronounce the word contunement. Because in England, we, we say contunement. Okay.
0: <laughs> now, you know, I will take you to Shimla. I don't know how aware you are. Right now, Himachal Pradesh uh, is going through unprecedented destruction. The rains are pounding the hills. Angry overflowing rivers are washing away houses. The roads are buried under landslides. Lives and livelihood are both at stake here. But of course, some 200 years back, Shimla was still a pristine village, probably. It was not yet a town. Can you take us to the beginning of the cantonment that we know
1: so well now? Yes, well, as as I say, Bohampo was the first one. Um, others developed fairly rapidly but it's interesting if you actually look at a map of northern India they tend to develop along the banks of the Ganges it's the rivers which are really important initially and you've also got a cantonment at Mongir. and this was interesting because this was adapted from an old Indian fort it wasn't very satisfactory and a lot of work had to be done on it but this is an example of a contunement being, you know, plonked, if you like, in the middle of a fort. But this seems to be the only example. It looks as though the company preferred to have open land where they could set up their own buildings and actually design them around a parade ground. So dinapore, for example, um a partner, you, you've got a completely new building. It's not being adapted from anything else. So they they really preferred a sort of virgin plane, if you like, that they could put their own buildings around. But what ha- happened to Shimla? There was no Ganges there. there was... Yes, Shimla um, is completely different because this is a hill station. It did have a small cantonment about 24 miles away at Subatu. And Shimla was one of those places which was developed after the um, Anglo-Nepalese wars. And once the Punjab had been conquered, you know, to put in inverted commas, it meant that this whole area could be developed. But the interesting thing about Shimla is that um, it was more or less the work of just one man, Captain Kennedy. And he was a company officer who was simply put in charge of the Sikh and Hill States. That was his position. And he needed somewhere to live. And at the time, it was just little sort of village houses, thatched bungalows, you can imagine it, by the hill tribes. And Kennedy wasn't going to have this, so he got his house organized. And it it said that it looked rather like a Swiss chalet, as it would do, because it's made out of pine with a base of stone. And he called it Kennedy House. So this was in 1820. But it didn't really take off until the Governor General thought that he would come up and visit Kennedy. He stayed in Kennedy House, obviously, because it was the only place to stay. But he also brought a number of his own offices, and they very quickly started to build their own homes. And it's said that within 20 years, going from just one house, Kennedy House, there were over 100 houses in Shimla. And it grew very rapidly indeed. So this was really the first hill station to take off. And then, of course, you've got other places like Darjeeling, Missouri, Nanital, and you've got Murray, which is now in Pakistan. So you could say it's almost an accident, if you like, that the hill stations were developed. And now they're so popular, they're suffering from all kinds of problems.
0: And how far apart were Behrampur and Shimla?
1: Bahampur? Oh, it's it's quite it's quite a long way. No, no, it? as
0: in not not in terms of distance. I'm talking about the number of years when Bahrampur was first set oh, up. I see.
1: Um, well, Bahampur was developed in the um, 1765. It was after the company had actually been awarded the um, Divani of Bengal and Bihar. That means they were allowed to collect the revenue, and so they wanted basis from which they could do this. So Bahampur came up pretty quickly about. 1766, whereas Schimler, as I say, is is much later. That's 1820. So quite a gap. Yeah, and Kennedy uh,
0: put up his Swiss chalet first and the cantonment that is 24 kilometers
1: away came later, right? Yes, the the cantonments are mid-18th century and they developed during that period, but the hill stations are early 19th century. There's quite a gap okay uh
0: there's a very interesting uh, uh a few a paragraph in your book and then you don't expand really on it and i was really curious to talk to you about that uh you write uh, it was not until the 1830s that the first european distillery was established at Kosoli in himalayas producing beer and whiskey which made it easier to supply the men and ration their supply. Why didn't you write more about the alcohol and how did the alcohol come about? Can you tell us if you know a bit more?
1: Well, I'm, I'm not really an authority on alcohol. Um, it It's clear that there were a lot of problems with the first company soldiers, certainly in Calcutta. We know about that. Um, We know that the citizens of Calcutta, the Indian citizens of Calcutta, were complaining fairly early on about British soldiers getting drunk and wandering around this small new town and molesting the women. And the company, you know, to their credit, tried to ration this. But you really can't ration alcohol to soldiers. I don't think this has ever been possible. Um, and they were drinking country liquor at the time—that's some um, arak and toddy, which both have a very high alcoholic content. Whereas the officers were importing alcohol from Britain, um, stuff like cherry brandy, which is pretty disgusting. So you've got a disparity between what the officers are drinking and what the men are drinking. There's absolutely no doubt that the British were very, very fond of alcohol, and. By setting up cassoli, it meant that um, you didn't have to import so much alcohol from Britain, which obviously sort of saved on tonnage and that kind of thing, if you could make it locally. And in fact, Indian whiskey is very, very good indeed. It's never been quite so successful with wine. But if you've got it sort of in-house, if you like, if you're actually manufacturing it in India, then it is easier to regulate. You can tell the men that there's only so much being produced and they're not getting anything from England. I, mean, I think quite a lot has been written about um, the solely and the breweries, but I'm not really an expert on it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that was quite a teaser that you left out there in the book. <laughs> but uh,
1: now. Well, well, the problem is that our, I had a word limit and I also had a time limit too. Um, and possibly I, I could have expanded on some things, but I was trying to give an overall picture rather than go into um, too much detail on one particular aspect.
0: Yeah. Before I let you go, let me just ask you, uh, during your research for this book, where you are looking at very granular details, as I said right in the beginning? What was the most astonishing fact that you came across?
1: I think what really interests me is what I was looking at in the last chapter, and you know, this is possibly something I could have expanded. It's not just physical changes that the company brought to India. It's, how would I put it? Um, it it's on a global scale. The way that the company changed the calendar, it westernized the calendar, if you like. As you know, there are many, many sort of Different Hindu years. There, there's um, Hindu years for different times of seasons and religious festivals. And the company said, "No, it's just going to be one calendar. It's going to be the Gregorian calendar. It's going to be what we use in the West." And they did the same with time too. So instead of having um, hours, um, you know, hours which are about three three length um, three hours length in time, they standardized time as well. They standardize the coinage and to some extent try to standardize the languages too by you know, promoting English. And it's been described as a sort of co- colonization of the mind, if you like. So it's not just physical things that change, it's changing other things too. And this I thought was very, very interesting. And, uh, there's another... Sorry, no, how you can actually manipulate time, time and space, if you like.
0: And and you also write that we don't know, we don't have an evidence whether these kind of changes, particularly when you're coming to somebody else's country and changing the way they see time, we don't know whether there was a protest initially because the freedom movement starts much, much, much later. And we don't know whether the Indians protested when they put up those uh, the, uh, those clock towers, you don't have that evidence about
1: that, right? No, no. what's really interesting is that um, I lived in Udaipur for a couple of years. And the clock tower in Udaipur was the kind of center, if you like, of the city. It's ridiculous when you think of the wonderful palaces, particularly in Udaipur and the lakes. And yet the clock tower seemed to dominate everything, and deliberately so, because it's much taller than anything else. And the clock tower in Udaipur wasn't put up by the British. It was put up by the Maharana. And there are similar clock towers in other Rajput states, for example. And it was a kind of rivalry, if you like. Who can build the biggest clock tower? Oh, um, <laughs> I, I, I do also see it as um, something slightly... Sinister, particularly in those areas where the British were Calcutta, for example, that's some um, it's a symbol you know the clock tower, if it's the largest thing in your town, then you're it's always going to be a reminder that somebody else is in charge, so I think that there's a different perception from local rulers putting up clock towers because they want it to show off, and the British putting up clock towers as a reminder, and of course the clock tower was showing. British time, if you like,
0: and then they everybody just embraced it. That's even more shocking. Not just that they embraced it; they went to sort of compete with each other to put more grand clock towers. So that that's that's. Yeah,
1: I thought I thought that was very interesting.
0: Yeah, that is surely very interesting. I would suggest to all our listeners to do pick up a copy of Empire Building, The Construction of British India, 1690 to 1860. Thank you so much, Rosie.
1: It was a pleasure to have you with us. Well, thank you very much indeed. I appreciated talking to you.
0: Thank you for listening to The Hindu on Books. You can now find The Hindu's podcast such as In Focus and Parley on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at Sockmed4 at the rate thehindu.co.in.